Hey guys, this is Georgia with Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens with Jamie and Bree. You're listening to That One Time I Was Abducted by Aliens. I'm Jamie. I'm Bree, and we're two sides of the coin. Hey guys, welcome back. We are going back into our Secret Space Program series here tonight. We're on episode number six. I've lost count, actually. Okay, some, some, you know, before 10, but after 5, somewhere in that in that range, you know. Tonight, we're going to be getting into Eisenhower and Valiant Thor. <laughs> I don't know why I'm <laughs> saying it with a question mark. Because that's how it should be. This is going to be an interesting episode, and let me start off by saying that for all the FFCs out there, all of this information that we're about to say is incredibly speculative. It's really not proven in any way, shape, or form, and we can only give you the information that we have available to us and that is out, you know, on the interwebs and in the world about what kind of happened during this time period. It's a little bit iffy, and I think that the reason there's so much kind of speculation behind it is because it does involve directly our U.S. government, and I think that people are a little afraid to admit something like this possibly could have happened. That's very true. Everything is off of circumstantial evidence and eyewitness testimony. It really just paints a picture, and it's up to you guys to decide what that looks like. Exactly. That's all we have. So we're going to start with Eisenhower, as you said, who was also known as Ike, and he was the United States 34th president between 1953 and 1961. And I'd like to mention that Eisenhower was very reluctant to be president, and it's very well documented. He was quite opposed to the whole idea, but he hung out with a group that he referred to as the gang, which were the most wealthiest men at the time. So are you telling me that back during this time, (laughs) that gang was a a word not associated with, you know, maybe the lower class criminals, but a gang of very rich people up in the government who are very powerful? That would be kind of cool, actually, if gang meant just, like, your money clan. Ooh, your money clan. Gang, gang, gang. Gang, gang. Exactly. How many times in your life have you asked, you bang? Never. Really? Why would someone ask me that? Oh, my God, all the time growing up in Morgan Hill, I'd walk down the street, oh people would be like, God. oh, you bang? And I'm like, what? We're in Morgan no. Hill. Go ahead. So this gang, these wealthy men, they pressured him to run for presidency. And for a long time, he said no. And it was like they vetted him to do it. He went from a clear no to running and then being president-elect. It's interesting. I wonder what the motive of all of these individuals had. Like, I'm sure that each of them had kind of something they wanted from him being in a position of power. Yeah, for some reason, knowing this spikes my interest. It's almost like the words cabal are whispered into my ears. Maybe it's just from conspiracy after conspiracy to when you hear something like this makes my ears prick up and think, this is weird. And maybe it's not, maybe it's whatever, but for some reason knowing that to me plays a part in the bigger picture. Well, I think it goes to show that not every president or person in power necessarily wanted to be there. And it just shows that these people who are in positions of power in government at the end of the day are just pawns. I think he had good intentions and then they convinced him because he was a strong individual and, you know, he really did a lot for us in World War II. And so I I think he was like the perfect figure to just put into place. 
So as we know from the Majestic 12 documents that we read in our other episode, Eisenhower was debriefed on the presence of Majestic 12 and the UFO issue. But the biggest conspiracy surrounding Eisenhower is if he met face-to-face with extraterrestrials. And more than one meeting with extraterrestrials at that, there's a few different instances of where and when and how and who, what you know, was going on really when it comes to ETs and him. Right. And so if if this is true, then I would consider this the biggest event in history. One of our presidents met face to face with an extraterrestrial. I would consider that the biggest event in our history. Well, I would assume that if he was the first president to meet with extraterrestrials, it would probably start a tradition of all people in our presidential, you know, position meeting extraterrestrials down the line. Like the gang would get bigger. Mm Mm-hmm. Gang, gang. The first alleged contact takes place in Southern California at Edwards Air Force Base which was previously Merak Airfield in 1954. So around February 20th, 1954, President Eisenhower takes a vacation to Palm Springs to go golfing at the Smoke Tree Ranch Resort. One night, he goes missing from the public eye for 48 hours. Everyone loses track of him. There were stories people were making up like he died or he had a heart attack. For some reason, the fact that they were unable to see him just sent everyone into a panic. This is where the cover story allegedly begins. His press secretary, James Haggerty, makes an announcement that the president chipped his tooth on some fried chicken and needed an emergency visit to the dentist, and he isn't seen until church the next morning. Rumors started circulating that Eisenhower was whisked off to Edwards Air Force Base for a covert pre-arranged meeting with extraterrestrials. Sometime around April, a letter was sent to Mead Lane, who was the director of Borderland Sciences in LA, by his friend Gerald Light. Gerald Light claimed to be at the meeting with Eisenhower and the extraterrestrials. To me, the letter sounds a bit frantic. I read it to Jamie yesterday, and we were kind of like, uh... <laughs> we were laughing at it. It's iffy to me whether or not the letter is something to be taken seriously, although... Eisenhower's presidential library has detailed records of all medical and dental visits, and that one is not reported. And the wife of the now-deceased dentist claims that she had no knowledge of her husband working on Eisenhower, and he for sure would have told her if he did. And she's very adamant about it not happening. Well, I assume if I was a wife of the dentist and my husband didn't come home one day like, guess who I got to work on today, you know? That's you, something you would remember. Then, yeah, absolutely. That would be probably the biggest story that you told at all the parties. Like, did I tell you that so-and-so got to work on the president? That's something that people would remember. The second instance takes place one year later in New Mexico in 1955. On February 9th, President Eisenhower goes hunting at a Georgia plantation. His press secretary makes a statement that Ike got a case of the sniffles and would be out for a couple days. But during that time, there were numerous witnesses who saw Ike 1,300 miles west at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. The witnesses report seeing his Columbine 3, which is now Air Force 1, so that's the United States president's plane. That's what they're always flying in. And the pilot was instructed to turn off all radar. And once all radar was off, a couple saucers appeared. One landed in front of Air Force One, and the other just hovered. Eisenhower is then seen stepping out of Air Force One and into the saucer that had landed, and he's upon this craft for about 45 minutes. 
What's interesting backstory to this is just before he leaves for his hunting trip, China had threatened to invade Formosa, which is now Taiwan, and Eisenhower and his Secretary of State responded by threatening nuclear war if China decided to invade. I feel like that's a really serious time for you to decide the next day to be like, I'm going to go hunting. If you're threatening nuclear war with China, I don't think that the next day you would go hunting. No, it more sounds like you're trying to uh, meet up with people so you can let them in on the scoop and maybe get advised on how to handle the situation. Or someone had to intervene because you were about to do that. Also, it's important to note that Holloman Air Force Base had planned for Ike's visit a couple weeks prior. A parade was scheduled for his arrival, which I guess is customary when a president shows up at a base. They roll out the red carpet and the best troops are lined up. It's like an honoring of his arrival, which you know, like you see in all the movies, when the president lands and there's like the red carpet and they all line up. They knew that this was gonna happen, but then a week before his scheduled trip, it was apparently canceled. So when it trickled around the base that he did show up, it was super on the down low. And the word was, do not gawk, do not stare, don't wave, don't talk to him, it's business as usual. But he reportedly spoke to about 400 different men. So what I think what happened was that they did plan for this visit and they made sure to make something up so then when he does disappear again, things don't hit the fan like it did last time. Then realized they shouldn't have even announced that he was coming to the base so that the press alongside with everyone at the base wasn't on the lookout for him. And I think that's why they told everyone at the air base that he wasn't going to come. I think that in these early stages, it's them working out the kinks about exactly. how to do things more secretively. Exactly. William Cooper, who served on the Naval Intelligence Briefing Team for the commander of the Pacific Fleet between 1970 to 1973, had access to classified documents that entailed how the meetings were arranged and what the meetings were about. The first meeting was with a Nordic race, who warned us of another ET race and the damage we would do in the future. They said that we were spiritually unable to handle the technology that we possessed. We must stop killing each other, polluting the planet, reaping the earth if it's natural resources, and that we need to learn to live in harmony. They demanded that we disarm all of our nuclear weapons in exchange for their help in our spiritual development. And at the time, we said, hell no, go home. This is a crazy time I can't really blame the president. So unfortunately, that was the time that these peacekeepers packed up and went home. The second meeting was an entirely different race, the Greys. So apparently these Greys claimed that they were from Zeta Reticulum and they meant no harm to Earth. They were a dying race and they needed an infusion of genetic material from humans to help revitalize their species. And they would offer their technology without any concern of what we would do with it. So this time a treaty was agreed upon. The infamous treaty between the Greys and our government. Where Correct. A lot of people will get into it, the whole thing about how we traded so many people that they could take like every year or whatever in exchange you know, maybe for one of their crafts so we could back engineer it. So here's a quote from William Cooper. The treaty stated that aliens would not interfere in our affairs and we would not interfere with theirs. We would keep their presence on Earth a secret. They would furnish us with advanced technology and would help us with our technological development. They would not make any treaty with any other Earth nation. They could abduct humans on a limited and periodic basis for the purpose of medical examination and monitoring of our development with the stipulation that the humans would not be harmed, they would be returned to the point of abduction, would not have any memory of the event, and that the alienation would furnish Majestic 12 with a list of all human contacts and abductees on a regular scheduled basis. 
There would also be various underground bases where these experiments and technological advancements would take place with ETs working in tandem with humans. Dulce? And apparently these underground bases were one by Nellis Air Force Base, which is Dreamland slash Area 51, mm-hmm. and the other, Dulce. And flashback to our Dulce episode when we talked about Phil Schneider, which I know you'll link to later on mm-hmm. this episode as well. Phil Schneider, he was the geologist and structural engineer for the United States government and constructed deep underground military bases. He said, quote, and this is in a UFO conference in like 1994 or something. He said, back in 1954, under the Eisenhower administration, the federal government decided to circumvent the Constitution of the United States and formed a treaty with the alien entities. It was called the Granada Treaty, which basically meant that aliens could take a few cows and test their implant technologies on a few human beings. But they had to give details about the people involved. Slowly, the aliens altered the bargain until they decided they wouldn't abide by it at all. And it's interesting if you do think about that treaty that it was alleged to be under Dulce as one of the underground bases. And one of the things that you hear about Dulce was that it started off as something that we agreed to, we were working hand in hand. And then over time, these aliens, whoever the race was, ended up kind of taking over it. Well, yeah, and it got out of control. And the one thing people say about Dulce, the biggest part of it, is there were experiments going on there. There was genetic experiments Mm -hmm. between different races of aliens and humans and all that kind of stuff. So all of that, you know, links in with each other and the facts start to line up. And for a second, you're like, oh, shit. Are we getting somewhere? I think so. There's a lot more to how we got in contact with them and whatnot, but I think it's, like you said, it's really interesting to hear all these different moving parts and that they're really fitting together like a puzzle to me at this point. So that's the beginning of when aliens were coming to meet with United States officials. And all of that is going to take us to 1957, about a meeting that President Eisenhower had with a man named Val Valiant Thor. Now, I just want to start by saying we're not going to get too deep into a dive because there's a lot of information, but I'm going to really recommend if you guys are really interested about this, the only source that's really worth reading is going to be Stranger in the Pentagon by Dr. Frank E. Stranges, who we're going to learn a little bit about as we go on. Val Valiant Thor arrived on the scene on March 16th, 1957, when his spacecraft called the Victory One landed in a small town called Alexandria, Virginia. Upon exiting Victory One with his three crew members, Jill, Don, and Tanya. And before I continue, why are their names so normal? I said this to Bree when we were talking about the episode, and I'm weirded out that this guy is named Valiant Thor, but all of his space people have normal human Earth names. And I propose the idea that maybe his name is quite normal wherever he's from, and their names that sound plain Jane American to us are actually special over there. And I I like that explanation. So they get out of the spacecraft and they're stopped by two police officers who have their guns already out and pointed at them like WTF, what's happening? (laughs) What you're going to see a lot in this story is something called thought transference, where basically these aliens used their weird mind powers to basically kind of convince and coerce the people 
through their telepathy. Is that the word I'm looking for? Yes. Through their telepathy to convince them to do whatever they wanted. So Thor saw the police officers, used his mind telepathy, and somehow, some way, shape, or form, ended up at the Pentagon. It's like in Little Nicky when his brothers, they'd be like, you want to mind wrestle? And then he would like, they would like get into his mind and then he would do shit. Good movie. That's a great reference. I love that movie. So do I. So it's basically very typical. A spacecraft lands, aliens come out, and they say, take me to your leader. <laughs> oh, God. And instead of us just believing like they're aliens and taking them to the leader, they had to use some mind tricks in order to get there. So once at the Pentagon, all four of them were met with the Secretary of Defense, and about six members of his staff. On a weird note, this is mentioned in the book specifically, not only were the Secretary and Defense and his staff, but like other police agencies, other, you know, CIA, FBI were all there arguing over who was gonna take him to the White House to the president which I just find a little bit weird that like they're all just happen to be in this one place at this time. <laughs> well, they're probably always watching. They're like, I, mean, I want to be the one that brings him to it. Mr. President, I have a friend. With more of this magic thought transference, Val ended up working his way through the security post and was soon ushered underground into an underground tunnel to hop on a train to get sent off to the White House. Dope. Six officials, six armed guards, and three Secret Service agents escorted him into the office of Eisenhower. Val, at that point, reached out his hand so he could shake the hand of the president, and all these Secret Service agents and shit all pulled out their guns and pointed it at him, like, whoa, 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 buddy, what you doing with them hands? <laughs> Instead of using his thought transference, though, President Eisenhower gave a little nod, and everyone very reluctantly lowered their guns, and this is the conversation, allegedly, that happened that is a quote from Frank E. Strangers' book. Of course, you know, we have all suspended the rules of protocol. I have a good feeling towards you. Please, sir, what is your name and where do you come from? I come from the planet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Please do it in an accent. That's amazing. I can't, I can't. I come from the planet your Bible calls the morning and evening star. Venus? Yes, sir. Can you prove this? What do you constitute as proof? I don't know. Well, you come with me to my ship. My friend, I cannot come and go as I please. There are others to be considered. There are committees to be constituted and security measures to be adhered to. Please, spend some time with us here. Let's get better acquainted, learn more about one another, and perhaps soon, real soon, well, we shall see. Cause Eisenhower's like, I've done this before, dude. I've met with plenty of them already. Go ahead, stay, take a couch. So that was something I was gonna mention. So obviously, if this dialogue is really exactly what happened, it doesn't sound like Eisenhower was meeting an alien for the first time. What it sounds like is he's like, okay, we have another batch of them here, guys. You know, <laughs> let's, let's get this over with and deal with it. He's like, you're not special, dude. That's fine. So as soon as Eisenhower finished that sentence, the most miraculous thing happened. Vice President Richard Nixon busted in the room, basically kicking down the door like, what's happening here, guys? So Val's whole reasoning for being on planet Earth was because the High Council, as he called it, sent him. And he even had some type of like weird scrolly type paper that was like written in an alien language as like proof that he was coming from the High Council. And his mission was to quote, his purpose in coming was to help mankind return to the Lord and help save humanity. Like a gentleman. I feel like I just like, I wanna put like the face hand emoji right at the end of that sentence. Eisenhower hears him out and Eisenhower comes to the decision that Val's offer was gonna have to be a hard pass from him. He was like, mm, that's a no for me, dog. And not only would the news of his arrival set the economy into a tailspin, Eisenhower even stated that humanity wouldn't be able to cope with the thought of visitors from space, which is very reminiscent to the other aliens offering some sort of help and Eisenhower saying, no, 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 I'm sorry. No, that's, that would ruin planet Earth, no thank you. 
thank you. Absolutely, especially since that weird letter from Gerald Light, he made it sound like everyone there was shitting their pants. Mm -hmm. So he probably thought, if all of these dudes can't handle it, no one can handle it. Yeah, if you can't handle it on a small scale, there's no way the world's going to be able to handle it on a bigger scale. So although Val's mission wasn't going to quite pan out to what it was supposed to be here on Earth, the president did offer him to stay here for three years and help some scientists with, like, basically space-related shit. Like, at the time, we're trying to figure out, like, hyperspace and, like, all, you know, all the kind of things that the government wants to learn about rockets and stuff because we're still very new to the world of space. So it's decided in that moment that Val will spend the next three years here living in a beautiful apartment inside of the Pentagon. From this fancy Pentagon apartment, it's said that Val was always in constant contact with his ship and was keeping up on the news of the world's growing tensions, i.e. kind of like, you know, the atomic bomb shit's happening. We have nuclear weapons and things like it's all that's wrapped up. So the whole world is really on edge. And Val is very much so feeling out the situation and seeing what's going on with the world. So at some point, Val is allowed a bunch of scientists to take his space suit that he has and run a bunch of tests on him. And a report described his suit as soft, silver, and gold lustrous. The fabric is said to be unknown. The weight is six ounces total, including his boots, which is funny because you think boots would be heavy. His boots sound more like socks to me. They're Valenciagas. The ones that look like socks? <laughs> there you go. Cardi. <laughs> and the cut was close fitting like a tunic. No cuffs, no pockets, no buttons, no zippers, no clips or hooks. Every attempt to penetrate the spacesuit was very unsuccessful. Even using acid at one point, and the acid just rolled off of the fabric and right onto the floor and burnt a hole. At one point, they even used a diamond drill bit to try to drill into it, still didn't do anything. As a last and final resort, and the person who was conducting this experiment, let me just tell you, was like very proud of himself. And he was like, oh, th this'll, this'll be the one. Pulls out a big giant laser. He goes on to explaining to Val like how the laser works and how it's so powerful. And Val's just kind of like, like smirking at him, like, you okay, your laser's gonna really harm me. And sure as shit, they turn on the machine, the laser does nothing to it. And at this point, Val really laughs laughs it off, kind of scoops up his suit and is like, all right, guys, you've tested enough. Obviously, nothing you have is going to do anything to it. Let's all just continue on our day. So the month after he got there, it's April 1957, Val and his crew found themselves at a UFO conference in the backyard of Mr. Howard Menger in Highbridge, New Jersey. And this is where Val and his crew were first photographed. So if you go into Google, you type in Val Valiant Thor, first thing that comes up are these pictures of him at this UFO conference in a backyard. It almost looks kind of like maybe like a barbecue picnic kind of situation but everyone has like books and they're writing and all the seats are positioned in a way where it looks like they're looking at a speaker so a little different than a you know normal barbecue. Val is described as being extremely tall, handsome, brown wavy hair, and brown eyes. And that, you know, seems pretty normal to me. The one thing that everyone across the board has said is that Val looks like a human in almost every way, shape, or form. Where it starts to get a little weird in the details for me is they say that he could speak a hundred languages, and that's including not just languages here on Earth, but like other spacely languages. He had an IQ of 1,200. He had six fingers on each hand, and his fingers never left any fingerprints. And his lifespan was about 490 years. That all sounds good to me, except the extra finger. Yeah, so, and the thing about the extra finger is like, I'm kind of skeptical about it because if you look at all the photos and stuff, he's weirdly hiding his hands in all of them. It's like, don't judge me. They're, they're all, they're tucked in and like under paper. Like it's very, because I went and I looked and I'm like, but can you see six fingers in these photos? And like, what's weird about it is like, oh, you really can't, like you don't know. Maybe that's why someone threw that in there. They're like, we need to add more something that is more alien 
to a normal human. Oh, for sure. I'm sure that that's something that was thrown in there at the end. So to make a very long story short, Val spent the next two and a half years hanging out around the Pentagon and the White House. And during this time, he said, quote, he had never witnessed in one central location such concentrated confusion. Which I think is a fairly accurate, even in today's world of the Pentagon. Absolutely. And this is kind of where the story starts to take a turn. Because we're getting to the end of Val spending his three years here on Earth, hanging out at the Pentagon, not really doing anything, kind of trapped and stuck and not able to kind of like follow through with his original mission that he has. The clock is ticking. He's going to have to go home. And he's at a point where he's like, shit, we should probably do something about my mission so I don't go back home completely empty handed. So the same guy who ended up snapping the photos of Val originally had given these photos eventually to a man named Dr. Frank E. Strange, explaining that these were photographic proof of aliens inside of the White House. Dr. Frank E. Strange's was a very interesting man who dabbled into seemingly unrelated fields. Originally, he was a self-proclaimed minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and even becoming the president of the International Evangelical Crusades. But his real passion was UFOs. He was the founder and president of the National Investigation Investigation Committee on UFOs, and he claims to hold degrees in theology, psychology, and criminology, but unfortunately I cannot mm. confirm that he has those degrees, and there's a mm. lot of people in speculation on the internet who, who say he lied about these degrees, he lied about the rest of the story. No, he never said what colleges he went to, he never produced any proof that he had all of this training and things like that. So in December of 1959, Frank was giving a lecture at the National Evangelical Center, where he was showing all of these photos of Val. Not in any particular way because he didn't really have firsthand knowledge. It was just something, a part of his lecture, he'd put him up there and said, you know, this guy came to me with these with these pictures of this alien and, you know, this is the information I have and this is what's going on. And he had always talked about it in all of his lectures ever since the day he had gotten the photos. So this lecture wasn't anything special or anything different than the lectures he had already been giving. So at the end of his lecture, he was signing books. He had just released a book called Saucerama and he was signing all these little things like everyone's like, oh my God, Frank, I love you. I'm your biggest fan. Will you sign my book? And up walks this lady who's trying to get his attention. He's not really paying attention. And she just flops down her Pentagon ID badge. And he like very slowly looks up like, okay, you have my attention now. The lady introduces herself as, quote, Nancy Warren. And I'm gonna say quote, because I think that that is a fake name that's being used because they never wanted to give out who actually was the Mm -hmm. insider inside of the Pentagon. So for the story's purposes, her name is Nancy Warren. So once in private, Nancy asked Frank if he wanted to meet the man in the photos. And of course he was like, hell fucking yeah. The next day, Nancy took Frank to the Pentagon to meet Val and Frank talked about Val's mission here on Earth, his last two and a half years at the Pentagon, and how his time here was almost up. Val didn't want to leave back to Venus, not being able to accomplish his original mission. So he basically asked Frank to come here, meet with him, so that Frank could take on his message to the people. And since Frank so happened to be a preacher and a UFO researcher, he was the perfect man to take on the task. During the last few months of Val's stay, he made sure to stay in contact with Frank and give him as much information as he could. And on March 16, 1960, exactly three years after his arrival, Val and his crew ventured back to Alexandria and boarded Victory One. They dematerialized and went back to Venus. Frank claims that Val is still in contact with Earth and that once he arrived back at Venus, he was given a new mission. The mission was, quote, to mingle and become as Earth people, to work and labor in Earth enterprises, to help those who encounter possible threat or danger while striving for world peace, to give them advice and guidance, to entrust with superior knowledge those who have proven themselves, to divulge the essence of their mission onto the collective national leaders of Earth 
only when the time is right. And Val apparently still to this day is continuing this mission. He is still assisting in preventing our civilization from being the cause of orbital chaos by the destruction of our planet. What a hero. Again, go read the book, but that's kind of the overall story of all of it. Frank ended up writing this book, Stranger in the Pentagon, which goes over all of these details in 1967, so seven years after Val had already left, and he wanted to let the world know about Val and his message. And then in 1995, Phil Snyder confirmed the existence of Val at the Preparedness Expo, claiming that his father worked with Val at the Pentagon, even producing his own photo of Val with his father in the background of the picture. And I think a few months later is when Phil allegedly committed suicide. He was murdered. It's very clear he was murdered. That's why I said alleged suicide. So badly alleged that it's not even worth saying that it was an alleged suicide. Yeah, so it seems interesting that all of a sudden he comes out about Val and wants to say all these things and then ends up dead. But I have an issue a little bit with Phil Schneider's story when it comes to Val. I'm a real big Phil Snyder fan when it comes to Dulce. I'm not the biggest Phil fan when it comes to Valiant Thor. My issue lies with the photographic evidence. The pictures that Frank came out with are, you know, a set of photos that have Val. It's all very clearly, or at least to me, Brie thinks a little bit differently. It's very clear to me that they're all the same picture. He has the same face, the same hair, the same hands or whatever. Like it all looks the same. And then Phil comes out with this picture of somebody who's blonde, way taller, has like a super strong jawline. And I'm weirded out that they're both saying that both of these pictures are a Val, but they're two clearly completely different people. So I, I get a little iffy on it. Not, not to say that Val wasn't around or anything. I'm just a little bit iffy about the two different pictures who show two different people. There's all this stuff talking about them as being Nordic, like you said, and then the photos that Dr. Strange says are Val don't look like your typical Nordic, like the way that they're portrayed normally with the brown hair, especially like brown wavy hair and like brown eyes. Yeah, Nordics are very... I would actually think more like bleached blonde and like a strong jawline. And blue eyes, which is funny because that's the picture that Phil produced is somebody who looks like very tall, very blonde, very pale skinned, and you almost get that very Nordic feel from them. Now, maybe that was just a different alien who is also maybe from Venus. You never know. Brie pointed out that maybe he's Val's a shapeshifter and he's more than, you know, one look of a of an alien. There's plenty of different, I think, excuses that we could give to why there's a difference between the two photos. I just find it interesting that the photos are different. I find it interesting that Dr. <laughs> quote doctor. Quote Dr. Strangest. I think in his book, he ties a whole lot more of spreading the gospel linking with Val mm -hmm. than I think Val was actually quoted saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, even with that whole like bring people back to the Lord, you could interpret that so many so different, many different ways. ways. It could be like just the Godhead in general. It does not necessarily mean that it is the Jesus Christ that we know of here today. Mm -hmm. So it would be very interesting to think that Dr. Strange just took some of his own beliefs and weaved that in with Valiant Thor. So when he wrote this book, he had a link between aliens and also with the Christ story. Well, I think a big reason maybe he did both of them is because he was at the time one of the only people in the world who had his hand in both topics. So I think that he maybe amplified a little bit of the Jesus stuff a little bit more to solidify the fact that, you know, he was chosen for this because of those two things. 
Mm, the whole chosen thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think overall about the Valiant Thor story? Like I've said on another podcast before, I love the story of Valiant Thor, and I love the whole magicalness of it, of how he came, and he's using, you know, magic mind powers. It's very alien and he's, like, hanging out in people's backyards at UFO conferences. All of it sounds very fantastical and very romantical, and I like it. The problem is, is that the more and more I pull at the threads of the story and the more you try to investigate and really get to the bottom of it, the more the whole story starts to unravel. And so I have a hard time believing that it really did happen. Mm-hmm. I would love for it to be true and for it to actually have happened. It's just I have a hard time because I can't put substance to the story. We only have these really two people who are the witnesses about it and the only two people to come forward with evidence about this happening. And both of them, unfortunately, are a little bit uncredible in the bigger picture of things. Even with Phil, I feel like it's just like I have a picture of my dad and him. It's not like a personal story of him. He didn't have anything else to say. Mm -hmm. So you could almost like throw him out as being a person to even think is credible for her story. And then you might just be left with Dr. Strange's. I think I feel like it sounds a bit like a comic book. Yes. Very much so. Like he arrives in his spacesuit and like just everything about it to me sounds like he's like a superhero. Well, and not only that, but also what it sounds like to me too is a man who is deep into research in the UFO community and he has a lot of knowledge of all these stories and it sounds very typical of, you know, alien shit that would happen if it were to come down. So it more to me sounds like he made up this fantastical story to kind of exploit the community so that he could get some recognition and he could further himself. And not not saying that he was doing it to make a shit ton of money, because let's be realistic. In this field, you're never making a shit ton of money. Whether your story's true or not, you'll make a little bit of pocket change, don't get me wrong. But I think he was more doing it for the notoriety of it. Yeah, there's a possibility that maybe he didn't meet Thor, but he heard the story and maybe he really did believe that part of the story. So then he added that he met him in person. Well, you have to remember that our mind is a very powerful thing and we can convince ourselves that something is real and happened even though it didn't. And maybe in his head, it really was real. And that's why he talked about it so passionately. Maybe he overheard it and he concocted it in his mind. And over the years and years of telling the story, he just really believed it to be true. So I guess it's up for you guys to decide what you think of all of this. ETs and meeting humans and most importantly, having contact with the United States government. All right, Brie, let's get into our shout outs. We're going to start at our skeptic level where we have Jan from the Good, the Bad, and the Just Plain Standard podcast. Then we have our truth seekers, Scotty at Scotty Doodle. Destiny at Destiny from Space. Shayna, Jamie's mom. We next have the skeptical truth seekers, which is Adam from Not For Everyone podcast, and he also hosts Love Lines Wednesday nights on kzsm.org. Next is our middle bitches, our number one, Raya. Raya, love you. We also have Bobby, who's the other co-host from Not For Everyone podcast. You can follow him at Pinball Bobby on Instagram, and you can follow the podcast at Not For Everyone Podcast on Instagram as well. Our skeptical middle bitches, we have AP at Weather Traditions on Instagram. Hey, AP, love you. And our last category is the Anything Is Possible, and we have Matt. Matt just released an article in Mensa where he did a little interview and is talking about To The Stars Academy, so I highly recommend that you guys go and check that out. It's inside the Mensa magazine, and it's a beautiful done article. It's fantastic. Definitely go look into it. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, everybody. We love you. I just want to let everyone know that I did have somebody from Beaver Dam reach out to us. 
So now you don't have to say fuck you beaver dam every episode. We're still waiting for Mountain View. Their Instagram is at Vanessa Wendango and they came at us like, hey, I'm from this town. Here I am, it's me. And <laughs> here I am, I'm the beaver. They were like, I didn't know that I listened to your podcast that much. And I was like, oh my God, there's no way it's just you. It has to be more people because there's like way more downloads than one person could do in a week's time. Like it's just not possible. And what's funny is like, it's getting even more. I think the other day we had one day where like just like almost a hundred listens just from Beaver Dam. Wow, the beaver spreads like wildfire. <laughs> that sounds so inappropriate and I don't know why. <laughs> the, be- the beaver spreads like wildfire. Oh yeah, I guess. Now that I think about (laughs) the beaver spread. Wow. So we love Beaver Dam. You're not on our shit list. But per usual, I am going to say, fuck you, Mountain View, California. You still won't tell me who you are. And I only need one DM. All I need from you, Mountain View, California, is one DM proving to me that you're there and you're not just NASA. Because the more you continue on, the more I just think you're NASA. So shoot us an email at that one time I was abducted at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at that one time I was abducted and, you know, all the other social medias that are out there. Absolutely. Even on Pornhub.com, hashtag that one time I was abducted. Really? No. Oh, that'd be badass, though. How horrible would that be if you could find that, click on it, and it's us? Because we're Secretly. two girls. What was it? We're two girls, one one, cons- one big cup of conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah, so if you go to Pornhub, look up two girls, one big cup of conspiracy, you might find us. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We love you. And before we go, just one more thing. Thank you, Simon, so much for saying that you want to hear about Valiant Thor. This episode's for you. 